So today we are finishing our story through the book of Ruth, and if you've been with us through these last uh, three or four weeks of this short book of Ruth, uh, you might assume you know how this is going to end, particularly maybe if you haven't read the book or it's been a while, and so you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen. Um, one of my favorite things, though, is when stories maybe don't end the way that you would expect. Uh, and to set us up for today's maybe surprise ending, I thought I would share with you some tweets that have surprise endings because they're funny and they're short and they're quick. So to get us ready for the end of Ruth, I'm going to read you some tweets that will also be on the screen. Here's the first one. Uh, somebody said, I can't believe people don't eat the crust. Like, what the heck? It's part of the food. It's fantastic, even if it doesn't taste the same as the rest of the watermelon. <laughs> Here's the next one. It says, phone ringing, boss. Why aren't you picking that up? Me, I always answer the phone in the third ring. It makes it seem cooler. Boss, pick it up. Me, rolling my eyes. Fine, 911, what's your emergency? <laughs> That's very funny. The next one. <clears throat> Someone said, me, I've got a date tonight, and I need all the help I can get. The barber says, okay. Later, during the date, says, hey, you look nice. Barber from under the table. Tell her she looks nice, too. <laughs> We've got two more. Uh, this person said, whenever I get change from a store, I always put it in a little jar when I get home. It doesn't seem like a lot, but over time it adds up. So on a rainy day when I'm hungry and I don't have a lot of lunch money, I can just go into my piggy bank and eat the coins. <laughs> Someone said, ooh. That was kind of funny. And then last but not least, I think this one was my favorite. said, I remember when I was a kid, I could go to the store with $1 and come back with three bags of chips, two candy bars, Arizona drink, and some Kit Kats. Nowadays, they got cameras everywhere. <laughs> so these things don't end the way that you might expect. And so with that, uh, we'll be in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, there's a black one around you. You can read along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. I'm going to give you a 60-second recap of where we are. If you haven't been with us, some of these things might not fully make sense, but I'll at least try to get you uh, cut up as best I can. Uh, Ruth is a story. It begins with Naomi and her husband Elimelech. They live in Bethlehem in Jerusalem uh, during the time of the judges when Israel has kind of recently-ish gone into the promised land, and they've been extremely unfaithful. There is a famine, and so Elimelech and, her, and his family, instead of asking for God's favor or repenting or asking him to bring food, they decide to uh, leave uh, Jerusalem or leave Israel uh, and go to their neighboring uh, kind of rival territory the Mo to the land of Moab. When he gets there, uh, he dies, so Naomi is left without her husband. Both of her sons die. She's a widow, she's, a poor, she's poor, and she's a foreigner. Things are not going well, and so she hears at the end of chapter one of Ruth that, uh, that there is a harvest, that the famine looks to be ending in Bethlehem. And so she comes back. Uh, one of her daughters-in-law stays, stays in Moab. Her other daughter-in-law, who is also a Moabite, decides to stay with Naomi, which is significant. Uh, it's courageous that now Ruth, the daughter-in-law, again, her husband has died. Naomi's son, who she was married to, has died. Uh, she has signed herself up to be a poor foreigner and a widow in a foreign land in Israel to help care for her mother-in-law. And so they get to uh, Bethlehem. She starts, Ruth starts working in a field. Uh, as it turns out, of course, as we're supposed to understand, God and his providence has led Ruth to work in a man named Boaz's field. Boaz is a man of high character. He's also a relative of Ruth's deceased husband. Uh, and so he has been kind to Ruth because Ruth has been kind to Naomi. Uh, in chapter three, we saw last week that Ruth, long story short, ends up proposing to 
Boaz, asking Boaz to be a family redeemer, which as we talked about, uh, there is a process of family members who, if a widow dies and she's childless, she would marry typically a brother, but if not, perhaps someone else in the family line or the family tree to provide children for her, protection, marriage, land, uh, all these sorts of things. And so she asks if Boaz would do this, and Boaz says yes, which we're really excited about. But chapter three ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger that Boaz is not the closest relative to Ruth's now deceased husband. And so he is going to the town, uh, to the town square today in Ruth chapter 4, to see if the closer person who's more closely related to Ruth's deceased husband wants to marry Ruth. And if not, then he will. But it's not fully up to him. Now, there's a lot more to that, but that's as much time as we're going to talk about. So let's get into Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I want to say one more thing uh, as we read this. I think one of the hard things, and because it's hard, uh, one of the sad things about reading the Old Testament uh, is how different the cultural and context is. And why I think it can be sad is because we can misunderstand a lot of what's going on, and then we can make fun of it. Particularly people who are maybe antagonistic to uh, Christianity or Scripture. They see things, they think, that's so dumb, I can't believe. And the reality is they have no idea what's going on, the context in which it was written. Uh, and so I think today, what we can often do when we read throughout Ruth, and even today as we read some things that we might be like, that's kind of weird, uh, we can forget that God meets us and our cultures where we are, right? It's really easy for us to be like, well, that's kind of weird, like a family redeemer that she has to marry like one of her other family relatives. Like, why is that a thing? Why doesn't God just say, no, you can marry whoever you want? And we can forget that in culture in which they lived, uh, being a woman and a widow was a terrible thing. The fact that there were provisions in the Israelite law to take care of a widow was good. I mean, even think of it this way. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But even in, the, in America, right, even in, in our recent history, if you were a woman in the United States, you couldn't vote. You couldn't buy a house. You couldn't take out a loan. You couldn't do a lot of things. And so being a widow was extremely difficult. And so this was even more so the case in the ancient world. And so the fact that God provides and encourages people to redeem is a significant thing. And so I get, I get, as we read stuff like this, we could say, well, that's true, but why can't God just fix all the stuff that's wrong and just tell people what they should do? And then, of course, if we think about ourselves, well, why doesn't, do, why doesn't God do that for us? Isn't it a good thing that God is patient and kind and meets us where we are. Instead of leaving us in the dust by saying, you need to do X, Y, and Z before you can come to me. He meets us where we are in our culture. And so I think that's, I just want to encourage that as we read some of these texts, as we read Ruth and Ruth 4, there's things that are questionable to us. And just like God is meeting them where they are, just like he meets us where we are. And so that's enough to be, that's enough. In Ruth chapter 4, let's get started, uh, verse 1. What I'll do is I'll read most of Ruth 4 this morning, and then we'll do some points at the end, because there's, again, a lot that's going on here and a lot that might seem confusing. So here we go. Verse 1, chapter 4. It says, Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, so the person who was closer to Ruth's deceased husband than Boaz, had, that Boaz had spoken about in Ruth 3, had come about came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he, he went over and sat down. Sit here, and they sat down. So again, some context of what's happening here. Uh, the main gate kind of served as the town hall, particularly in a small rural town like Bethlehem. Kind of the official, the legal business would take place at the main gate because that is where most people would come and go. Uh, to sit is not just that they're going to like, hey, let's sit and have a conversation. It would have been understood as like, hey, I need to talk to you about something significant and a legal matter. So it's kind of like a formal request is what it means to sit here. Uh, and so they're going to 
talk about, you know, what's going to happen. And they gather some of the elders. Uh, presumably what's happening here is that the other redeemer is probably leaving Bethlehem to go work in his field like most of the people would have been doing. And again, we see God's providence that Boaz actually meets him and actually runs into him that very morning. Now, again, what has to happen here is Boaz has to gather at least 10 men or 10 elders, kind of the, the leaders, the older men of the town, because you would need at least 10 for a, what constitutes as a legal assembly. You would need people to sit and to listen to say, hey, what's being happening here is going to, you know, is legitimate, is going to happen, is, is kind of a legal process. Uh, now, again, Boaz, how does he get 10 people? It's, it's fair, I think, to assume that he's probably wealthy. He's a man of noble character. He probably had a lot of respect in the town. So it was probably easier for him maybe than others to try to get 10 people or 10 elders somewhat quickly to kind of talk about this legal matter. Uh, and so that's what he's doing. Now, last thing we'll see here is that this other redeemer, unlike Boaz, is not given a name. We're not told what his name is, and it seems to be that the narrator or the author of the book of Ruth is trying to show the difference between Boaz, who's a man of high character and cares for people, and this other redeemer who maybe doesn't do that as much. And here's what he says. He finds the redeemer, the moment we've all been waiting for, right? Is Boaz going to be the one who gets to marry Ruth? Verse 3, he, talking about Boaz, said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, he's not literally their brother. He's just trying to tell him one of their family members. Verse 4, he said, I thought I should inform you. Buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't any other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. I can't redeem it my, or, or, or after you. And then he says this. The other redeemer responds, I want to redeem it, he answered. Now, you, I mean, if you've been here, is this like, what? Like, this just makes me think of, uh, you know, the Office fans when Michael Scott finds out that Toby has returned. And he's just like, no, 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 right? It's like all of this story. And, and Boaz just asks this guy if he wants to redeem the land. And he just says, yes. I don't know for you. I mean, this is pretty anticlimactic here. And you're also reading this and you're like, why don't you say anything about Ruth? Like, she's also a part of this. Like, what is actually happening? So let me explain what's happening and then, and then maybe we can try to figure out what's going on. Again, these, these couple of verses are hard to understand. They're, in fact, they're kind of difficult to translate from Hebrew. Uh, but what, you would, what, what would often happen is that in Israelite and other ancient contexts, uh, there was customs regarding land ownership. And typically, and typically, widows could not sell land, right? Women could not sell the land, which again, why it is so hard to be a widow, because there's a lot of rights and privileges and legal protections that you may not have. So the question is, how can Naomi sell it when it's likely wasn't hers anyway because they had left for 10 years and even if they had stayed in Bethlehem, she wouldn't have the legal standing to sell it. And also, we know that her, that Naomi and Ruth have been living off of Boaz's land. So it's kind of weird that he would say he wants to sell the land or to buy the land. What's actually happening here? So here's what's happening here. Uh, Elimelech, again, I think it's, I think sometimes when we read scripture, we can forget what it's, we can just like read the story and try to forget like what it would be like to actually be in their position. So if you remember, uh, there is a famine, things are not going well. What probably happened was before Elimelech and Naomi went to Bethlehem, Elimelech probably would have sold the land to try to make some sort of income to try and survive. And then with no money, he would have one or two options. He could leave and try to make, you know, try to make ends meet somewhere else. 
or he could sell himself into slavery. Now, slavery, again, to think transatlantic the slave trade is not how it would work, but you could sell yourself into servitude of someone else to get provided for and to provide for your family. And so clearly they decided to leave and uh, they leave the land. Someone probably had taken over it or at least bought it from him before that happened. And now Naomi, who doesn't own the land, but still wants this land to go to a family redeemer. She wants, to, wants it to be in the family ultimately. And so what's happening is that Boaz wants this other person to decide if he wants to buy the, and work back the land. And he says yes, which of course, if you're able to buy land, you would say yes. The question for us is, why didn't you say anything about Ruth, right? I don't know. This is a strategic move. I don't know. But here's how Boaz responds, verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the, names, the man's name on his property. So again, now Boaz decides to mention Ruth, uh, who the Redeemer would also have to redeem, who he would also have to marry. Uh, they would have children with. And so what would likely happen is once the children became of age, these children would then take over the field because that way the land would stay in the, the family line of Ruth and Naomi and Ruth's deceased first husband. So that's what's going to happen here. You're going you're gonna to work it, which is great, but eventually you're not going to be able to keep it because it's going to stay in the line of the family. You're just supposed to redeem and to care for her, for Ruth, until that happens. And so here's how he responds, verse 6. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So again, I don't know his strategy here, but yes, this is good for us. Right? Good job, Boaz. What's happening here is that this, when, when this other redeemer gets more information, uh, he decides to decline. Now, maybe it's because Ruth is a Moabitess, and that's kind of you know, an iffy thing. There's a lot of uh, racial, uh, you know, unjustly or incorrectly, racial hatred between each other. But it seems more likely what's happening is that he knows that the prospect of having to buy a field and to take care of it, but then give it to somebody else, you know, you might not be able to afford. He, he's probably lucky or probably uh, worried about the inheritance of his own children that he currently has and having to split it multiple ways. Because being, again, being a redeemer means that you have to give of yourself of some way, that you are serving and caring for someone else. And so this redeemer says, no, I don't want to jeopardize what I have going on. I am not going to do that. Now, this is good news for us if we've been following along the story. And so here's what happens in verse 7. It says this, at an earlier period in, his, uh, in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal, the other person, not Boaz, and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also required Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are my witnesses today. 
So what's happening here, again, at this point, a crowd would have likely gathered to kind of see what was going on. And again, buying from Naomi is not technically what's happening here. What's happening here is that by Naomi would have wanted the, but basically what is happening here is Naomi wants this land ultimately, even though she doesn't have the ability to do so, to stay within the family. And so what he's doing is he's going to buy the land back from whoever currently owns it. And with Naomi's blessing, you know, buy it, acquire it, work the land with Ruth and let Ruth's children and his children ultimately take over the field when they become of age. Now, again, I'll let to say the land stuff, ain't nobody care about that, right? We don't care about that. We want to care about Ruth and Boaz and what's actually going to happen. And so here's what's going to happen. Verse 11, it says this. It says, all the people who were at the city gate including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make uh, the woman who is entering your house, so Ruth to Boaz, like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be more powerful in in Epaphratha, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son of Tamar, bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. <laughs> so again, we explain what's happening here. Uh, there are, the elders and the people in the town do something that's actually quite remarkable if you're reading this as an ancient Israelite. They, 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 they bless and they pray over Ruth, who is a Moabite, that she be welcomed in Israel. And not only welcomed in Israel, that she would be blessed, blessed like Rachel and Leah. Now, if you're like, I don't really know about them, here's the long story short of it. Rachel and Leah were the, uh, were the wives of Jacob. So in the beginning, in Genesis 12, you have God who calls Abraham, says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, out of which I will bless the entire world. So Abraham has Isaac. Isaac then has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And from him, the great nation came. And Rachel and Leah were his uh, were his wives. And so what they're saying is they want, they're, they're playing the same blessing over Ruth and Boaz, that they would have many children and significant children. And then they mention Perez and Tamar, which again, is a story we won't get into it this morning, but it's a story in Genesis chapter 38, where you have essentially the same sort of situation here. You have Tamar, who is a childless widow. She is a childless widow who is supposed to be redeemed. Right, just like Ruth, Ruth is being redeemed by Boaz, she was supposed to be redeemed. Uh, long story short, uh, Tamar ends up having a son who is named Perez. And Perez became a father of the f- a few of the clans of which Boaz is a part of. So again, I know it's a lot of information. You have Israel. Then you have the 12 tribes of Israel, which Judah is one of the tribes. And then under the tribes, you have clans. And so Boaz is a part of the tribe of Judah, and he's also part of the, one of the clans of Perez. And so the, Boaz's existence himself, all that to say, is the result of a childless widow. And that this man is also becoming and redeeming Ruth in the same way. And so they end up having a son, or sorry, so, so Tamar ends up having a son, Perez, who is again a part of, is, is, was the father of the clan of which Boaz is currently a part of. Now, what's interesting here is that their prayers, the prayers of these elders, actually become uh, extremely prophetic. As we're going to see in a second here, Boaz and Ruth's offspring are actually going to become far greater than that of Perez in ways that they could never have imagined. And so they bless this marriage, they pray for them, they want good for them. And then it says this in verse 13. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted her conception and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord 
who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who she's talking about, they're talking about Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then verse 16, Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. Now, remember that Ruth was married somewhere probably a little bit less than 10 years, but for a, lo- a long time uh, to one of Naomi's sons, and they never had children. Never could have children. So again, this is supposed to be seen as God blessing Ruth and Boaz and moving in miraculous ways. And so God blesses Ruth and Boaz. He also blesses Naomi, who again, remember, went from no family and nothing and no food to now is holding a grandchild she never thought she would have. Again, it's it's easy for us to be like, oh, that's a cool story. Just imagine being Naomi. You have lost everything. Again, as we saw in chapter one, we talked about it last week. She comes back to Bethlehem and says, I have nothing. Essentially curses God and herself. And now she is holding a grandchild who she never thought she would have, ever. I mean, she only cared that Ruth would be cared for. I mean, that was her only thing, that that Ruth would somehow survive as a widow and a foreigner in a land that she did not grow up in. And now she has a grandchild of her own. And not only that, the other women surrounding Naomi tell her that Ruth has been better to you than any number of sons. She's been faithful. She has been good. And look what has happened. Now, if you read this, you think, what a great story. Right? Especially if you've been with us and you've seen the heartaches and the pain of Ruth and Naomi and the courage of Ruth and Naomi and the faithfulness of God, you think, what a great story. And so before we talk about a couple other things, I just want to take a step back and, 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 and remind us or make this point, that who are we to tell God what he can and cannot do? Right? We've talked about this a little bit throughout this series, but again, if you're Naomi, if you're Ruth, you're, you are assuming, understandably so, how things are going to turn out for you, and yet they had no idea what was ultimately going to come for them. And I think it's, encour- it's an encouragement for you and for me to think about our own lives, lives and our own experiences and our own assumptions about what this all means, that, that you might be going through something right now and might be assuming, well, here's because of this, here is what's going to happen, and yet you have no idea what God might do. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is going to work out the way that you want it. Again, if we're being honest, uh, as great as this is for Naomi that she has a grandchild, if you would ask her, at the end of the day, she would love to have her husband back. She would have loved to have her original sons back, right? She would have loved to have all of these things. So it's not that life is better than it was before, but you have no idea what you might be walking through right now and what God might be doing. Listen, even if you've already given up, because Naomi certainly had, Ruth chapter one, at the end, she'd given up, and yet God does this. Who are we to tell God what he can and cannot do? Now, that being said, this is really cool, but it's not the end. It's not the end. Now, if you are, um, what reminds me of here, like, raise your hand and be honest here. Are you the type of person when, like, if you go to a sporting event and you know it's going to be over, you leave early to beat the traffic? Okay. All right. So if, if that's you and you left right now, you're about to miss something awesome. Okay, you're about to miss something incredible. This reminds me, even if you're not a sports fan, I just have to, this is what, so and a couple of years ago when the Miami Heat were playing the San Antonio Spurs, so the NBA Finals is the best of seven, which basically means whichever team wins first, whichever team wins four games first wins. And so they, it was game six, the San Antonio Spurs had won three games, the Heat would won two games. If the Spurs won this game, it was over. Uh, so they're in Miami, there's 28 seconds left, and uh, the Spurs are up by five points. And so you start seeing thousands 
millions of Miami Heat fans leaving because they lost. They don't want to see the Spurs win the championship, all this sort of thing. Well, miraculously, the Heat come back and tie the game with about four to five seconds left, right? And so their people are screaming. They're freaking out. They have all these, you can go Google it when you get home. All these people are now rushing back into the stadium to watch the overtime to see what's going to happen. The problem is once you leave the stadium, you're not allowed to be back in. So they had locked the doors, and thousands of people had missed out. The, the, the Heat came back and won in overtime, and then they won game seven and won the championship. So if you're a leave early type of person, this is a cool story, but it ain't over yet. So here's what happens next in verse 17. It says this. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi. Now, it's technically Ruth's son, but they're talking about the family lineage here. And it says this. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, why is that significant? What we see happening here is from the, from the line of Boaz and Ruth, from the line of Naomi, we get Israel's greatest king. The greatest king of Israel came from a redeemed marriage of a man of noble character and a woman of noble character where God does things that no one thought was possible. The King David himself comes from this family tree. And if you know anything about your Bible, it gets even better because if you read Matthew chapter one, which we won't do this morning, you know what the line of, who is part of the line of David and who is that? Good job. We're in church. It's the answer to everything. Jesus, Jesus himself, the Messiah, savior of the world comes from this line. Now, again, Ruth chapter 1, you see at the end of Ruth, you see the beginning of Ruth chapter 1, a family that has turned from God, that they were judged, they had a lot of bad things happen from them. They come back, Ruth, Naomi comes, Naomi comes back by herself with a foreign daughter-in-law with her. That's all she has. She curses God. They had turned from him. They had nothing. And now we see this. Who could have seen this? I, nobody could have seen this. And this is the reminder of us for what we see all throughout Scripture. And it is the reality that our God, is a pursuing God. Our God is a pursuing God. He desires your redemption and my redemption. Even when we've blown it, even when we've gone our own way, even when we've done all of our own, over th own things, God is still there and he is still waiting. Again, if you remember... Uh, that Israel, this is the time of the judges. Israel was in no place for this. This is likely happening when, when Ruth and, and Boaz marry towards the end of the judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, basically it's over and over again, the Israelites sinning, going their own way, repenting, God, God giving them grace, which they don't deserve. The second half of the book of Judges is Israel continuing to sin and asking God to help them, but they're no longer repenting. So they're not even repenting anymore. They're not asking for a savior. And what does God do? In the midst of their sin and their unrighteousness, he preserves his line or his faithfulness, right? Again, remember, Naomi, at the end of the day, just wanted Ruth to survive. That's why she was hoping and praying that Boaz would redeem her and cared for her. And yet we see that God pursues over and over and over again. This is who our God is. This is who our God is. And so this also reminds us of this point, that, faith, that your, God's faithfulness to us is greater than our faithfulness to him. Always. God's faithfulness to us is 
always greater than God's faithfulness to him. And so if you think you've blown it, the good news is God's faithful. Even when we try to honor him and love him, God is always more faithful to us than we are to him. And we even see this ultimately displayed in the gospel, that Jesus himself came while we were still sinners. He came to redeem a nation and through this nation, an entire world that had gone their own way. They didn't ask for it. They didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet God in his love sent Jesus to do for us, gladly and willingly to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, that he is our substitute, that he has defeated the powers of sin and evil and darkness and will one day return and recreate the heavens and the earth and everyone is invited who would follow and trust in him. The gospel is literally God's faithfulness over yours. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I've really blown it. Man, I really deserve, don't deserve it. Guess not. There ain't nothing you can do to deserve it anyway. There is no level of faithfulness you can attain that God's going to be like, okay, now you are good enough. He sends Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves so that anyone, no matter how righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy, you think you are, can experience God's grace and redemption. His faithfulness to us is always greater than our faithfulness to him. And that is what we see happening here. That's what we see happening here. And so let's read the last few verses of Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 18. It's, it ends like this. Now, these are the family records of Perez. We talked about Perez a little bit. <clears throat> Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, again, remember that this is all happening during the dark days of the judges. And what do we see? We see that the line for the Messiah, Jesus himself, is not preserved through heroic kings. Um, it's not preserved through mighty battles. It is preserved instead by the hand of a gracious and merciful God who loves and cares and redeems, even when we're not even asking for it, even when we assume that there is nothing left for us. So what is God and what has he done for us? What does God do? He redeems. He has redeemed Naomi. He has redeemed Boaz. And he has redeemed us. And Ruth. And he has redeemed us. Listen, for time's sake, we're not going to read about them. But if you, uh, you want to Google it when you get home, and just type in the word redemption in the New Testament. You will see this theme time and time and time again. Let me just read you one. This shows you this is the type of God. Who, this, is, this is our God. And Ephesians chapter 1 will be on the screen. It says this, verse 7 and 8. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. So not our efforts, not our trying really hard, not our trying not to do bad things. In Jesus alone, we have redemption in his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, in him, not in you and me and what we try to do. In him, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Why or how? According to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding that you have the opportunity of redemption, that I have the opportunity of redemption through his blood and through what he has done. Even when we don't deserve it, even when we have given up, we see all throughout scripture that God never gives up on us and he never turns his back on us. And so I think the best way to conclude our time in Ruth is to remember this truth, that no one is beyond the redemption of God. No one. You, your family member, your coworker, your neighbor, your classmate, classmate, no one. And so because that is true, because we are redeemed by Jesus' blood alone, here's the question. Do you want to be redeemed? 
That's it. Not the question is, what do I have to do to earn it? The question is not, how many times do I need to come to church? Or how much money do I need to give? Or how often do I need to pray? Or, or what do I need? Do I need, like, if I, if I blow it, do I need, like, to give God, like, a week or two to cool down before I approach him? None of that. The question is simply, do you want to be redeemed? Now, what does redemption mean? Redemption means to buy, to be purchased, or to be set free by paying a price. So one of the amazing things about Christianity is that we don't have a God that says, hey, you've blown it. Guess what? It doesn't matter. We have a God who is righteously angry towards sin, that his wrath will one day eradicate it from all of creation. And yet he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to eradicate us, that in the midst of our sin and our darkness, he doesn't say your sin doesn't matter. He says your sin matters greatly, and that is why Christ came, to pay the penalty so that you can be redeemed by me. But here's the thing. The price has been paid. The question is, will you accept it? That's it. And so if you are got questions about this whole Jesus thing, you feel like you've blown it, you need to know the price has been paid. The question is, do you want to accept it? And for those of us that are followers of Jesus here this morning, how easy is this for us to forget? Right? We think because I follow Jesus, I should know better. I've blown it. God's mad at me. The, redemption, the offer of redemption is the same for you. That all of us, all people in all places, no matter who you are, what you have done, or what has been done to you, can receive the grace and mercy of God. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask.